I got this friend, best friend. His name's JJ. JJ Abrams. We're tight. I, you know, I don't like to brag. I don't like to brag, but we're preaching today, so it's not bragging if it's true. So I got this friend. His name's J.J. Abrams. I got a nickname for him. I call him J-Bay. You can't call him that because your relationship isn't with him like mine is with him. Um, And we go back a long time, back to when I was in seminary. Now, our relationship isn't perfect like any two people's relationship. Nobody has perfect. Our relationship's not perfect. One of the imperfections in this relationship is I know everything about him. He doesn't know everything about me. So that's, that, that's a problem. Like, he doesn't know anything about me. Like, we've never actually met in person. But I followed his career very closely from the time he had a show called Alias way back in the day to the time that he had a show called Lost. He had a couple other shows. He had a couple other movies. Had a, a, a art film, like documentary that just came out at Christmas called Star Wars Episode Seven. It was amazing, inspiring. You'll watch it in your history classes for years to come. It was so inspiring. I actually wrote JJ uh, a song. It says, "What well, you don't know, I'm a, man? Like I can't sing, please." It goes like this. You ain't met me. I'm a little crazy. Here's my number. So call me J-Bay. So, you know, I don't know, like, if he hears it on the podcast, call me. Um, But this show Lost that J.J. Abrams did that I got, like, obsessed with, it was revolutionary TV. And in a lot of ways, it was ahead of its time. Like, we weren't ready for that yet. Because what we did not have yet, two very important things. Number one, high-speed internet, and number two, DVRs. And this dude created this television show that was all about storytelling, and it was one of the first shows that came on TV where you couldn't miss an episode. Because if you miss an episode, then, like, you wouldn't just be watching Lost, you just would be Lost, and you would have to cut it off and, and just wait for history to catch up and technology to catch up so you could watch the thing on Netflix. And I remember, like, one of the crazy things that, that, that came out of that show, that was birthed out of that show, that pretty much every drama now tries to recreate is this idea of time-shifting. On Lost, you had this group of people, and they're stuck on an island. And so the main story is really about their survival on this island. But there was this storytelling technique of time shifting where where they would go back in time or forward in time and, and look at what people's lives used to be like to help you understand them better as a character. And shows like Mad Men do this, shows like The Walking Dead do this now, pretty much all of the shows that that win awards and that people consider good shows tend to be shows that time shift to help us understand what's going on in the the current time frame that the show is happening in. Today, we're going to do a little bit of time shifting. For most, the most part this year, we've been in the book of Romans in chapel, and we've been talking about this guy, Paul, in this letter that he wrote to the church at Rome in Italy. And the thing about this letter, man, is it's intense. And you read it, and you get into it, and you're like, man, who is this dude? Is he even serious about this stuff? Like, like what's his life like? 
that he could encourage and exhort and, and ask people to do the things that he is encouraging and exhorting and asking them to do? Would he even do these things that he's wanting the church to do? Because he writes with such an intensity that you would think if you lived at that pace, if you just ran that hot all the time, you would probably just explode. It seems impossible that you could live with the intentionality in the intensity that Paul wants the people at Rome to live with when he writes this letter. And so today we're going to do a little time shifting, and it's crazy. This is going to blow your mind. We're going to go back in time, and we're going to go forward in time, because we're going to go to the last two chapters of the book of Acts. The book of Acts in our scripture comes before the book of Romans. In fact, it's right before the book of Romans. And the way the last two chapters of Acts ends, it ends with a narrative of something that Paul does, specifically Paul traveling to Rome for the last time. By the time we get to these last two chapters in the book of Acts, Paul has already penned the letter to the Romans that we have in Scripture. They have that letter. And so in some ways, we are traveling forward from where we were in chapel, but in some ways, we're traveling backward too, because by traveling backward in Scripture, we kind of start to get the setup of what the people who put together scripture in the order that they put it in, one of the things that they wanted to emphasize about this person uh, who Paul is as we get into the book of Romans. And so, Romans chapter 20, or sorry, Acts chapter 27, I'm probably going to do that more than once today. Acts chapter 27, Paul has just met with some kings and some rulers. He's been accused of doing some things, and the accusations are shady. He's not being accused of doing bad things because he's a bad dude. In fact, at this point in time, he is probably as ethically sound as he has been in his adult life. There were times in his life where he was doing bad stuff. This is not the time. But there are people who are threatened by him, specifically leaders, about the way that he is talking about church structures and, and about social structures. And, and so they arrest him. And they want to see him punished and taken out of the conversation so that he does not displace them in their places of power, so that he does not challenge the authority or the power or the comfort that they have. And he's working his way up through talking to governors and, and talking to kings. And finally, there's, there's this king that says, you know what, man? I don't think you've done anything wrong. But one of the things I keep hearing you say is you keep saying, I want to talk to Caesar. I want to talk to Caesar. And so he says, fine, man, I'll, I'll send you to Caesar if you want to talk to Caesar so bad. In, in Acts 27, Paul sets sail for Rome. But he doesn't set sail on a cruise ship. He doesn't set sail on a speedboat. He does not set sail through the air like we set sail if we were going to go to Rome. He sets sail as a prisoner. And he's this prisoner, and he's talking to this centurion guards, and this, this, this sea travel is going slow. And these guys are on a schedule in Acts 27. And so they're trying to push, but it's going slow, and they're having issues, and they're getting slowed down, and they're getting bogged down. And, and they want to begin to travel at a time of year where it's dangerous to travel. What they should do is just chill out. They should hang out because essentially what's happening is hurricane season. But they're like, no, man, we got to get to Rome. I bet these centurions were like, man, I want to get back to my boys. I want to get back, back to, to, to where I know that the food is good. I want to get back to my house. I want to get back to where everything is familiar and comfortable. And Paul says, don't do it. Don't do it. If we proceed, we are going to be in danger. 
And sure enough, man, this storm comes because it's storm season and the waves start slapping against the boat and the boat starts rocking and things start creaking. And these people start to fear for their lives. And they're like, we don't know what's going to happen. So they start rationing their food. They, they, they start fasting because they think that they might end up being in some kind of shipwreck and they're going to need to save as much as they can simply to survive. In Acts 27, verse 21, it says this. It says that after they'd gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourselves this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep your courage, because not one of you will be lost, only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of, of God the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me and said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. Now, this is a great speech, man. Of all the speeches in history, this is a classic speech because here it is, everybody's ticked off. Everybody's tired, everybody's hungry, everybody's scared, and Paul gets up, he's like, told you so. Why don't, man, y'all out here trying to get home, I told you don't go, I told you we should have stayed in Crete where it was safe and we wouldn't die, and you guys got us up in here flopping around like a fish in the ocean. So it starts on, on undiplomatic terms, I would say. You should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourselves and not damaged loss. But then he tells them to be courageous. And the reason he tells them to be courageous is because he has received a word from God. This word of God is interesting because this God, this word of God, this angel of God who has come to him, he says, don't be afraid because you have to stand trial before Caesar. You have something left to do. The angel of God didn't say, don't worry because I want you to see your family again. And the angel of God didn't say, don't worry because you have a lot of growing old to do. You have, you have a lot more stuff to accomplish. No, the angel of God just said, you have to go stand before Caesar. And when you think about the prospect of standing before Caesar, the odds of you getting out of that are not great. But that's what the angel of God says to Paul. You have at least this one last thing to do. And that at least one last thing to do is to stand before Caesar. So in the midst of this really, really bad situation right now, you're going to be delivered into another pretty tenuous situation. But the good news in all of that is it's going to work out for the glory of God because there are going to be people here whose lives will be spared. Where there would have been death and destruction due to folly, instead, there will be safety. Where there would have been the abyss of darkness, instead, there will be light. But you got to trust God in this thing. And God's not making a lot of grandiose promises here. All God's saying is you will arrive safe and you'll get to stand before Caesar. God's not, not, not laying out this whole big plan, but Paul still goes with it. That's how strong Paul's faith was. And so then this, this speech that did not start out very great ends with a promise and ends with Paul exhorting people to keep courage. And then the last sentence, nevertheless, we got to crash this boat, yo. We got like, and now he's just like, sounds like he's talking crazy, but they do listen to him. And so there's a shipwreck and there is a shipwreck on purpose. It goes counter to what their plan might've been or to what they might've thought was the best course of action. But God's courses of action are always better. 
And as bad as things are, God always has the power to redeem a situation, even if the situation is bad because we don't listen, even if the situation is bad because we're acting a fool, even if the situation is bad because we have sinned or someone else has sinned, God has the power to redeem that situation. And so here's God redeeming a situation. Verse 33, just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. For the last 14 days, he said, you've been in constant suspense. You've gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. Now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. After he said this, he took some bread and gave thanks to God in front of them all. Then he broke it and began to eat. They were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. Altogether, there were 276 of us on board. When they had eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. There's something poetic about this, and there's something chaotic about this. The poetic thing is this idea of Paul kind of inviting these guys in almost to experience like, like communion together, the Lord's Supper. There's a sense in which it does feel like it's, it's last rites-ish. Let's have this food. And there's something about it, though, which is chaotic, too. I kind of view it. So they've been rationing this food. They've been saving this food. Now Paul's like, eat whatever you want. It's kind of like in those Lord of the Rings movies, whenever the dwarves get together, and they just get, like, real uncouth when food comes around. And they're just shoving cheese down their gullet. And they're eating meat off the bone. And there's ale just all up in their beard. And it's looking gross. Like, if Cookie Monster walked into that room, he'd be like, oh, no, y'all even too nasty for me. Why don't you get some manners, right? And Cookie Monster, he is no cleanly eating monster. Like, like, like that man can put it down. But, but that's kind of what it reminds me of on this boat. Everything's happening. These guys are just like, ah, rah, rah, rah. Like, we're going to eat it. We're going to do the thing. Never mind the fact we might have to swim. Like, whatever. We won't cramp up. God will save us. And, and, and Paul gives them this advice. Let's, let's just do the thing. Like, let's commit to this. And let's go into this experience together. And let's go into it in a good place. Now, there was not unity. Even though Paul brought everybody to the table, there was not unity on the ship. We see division in verse 42. The soldiers planned to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping. But the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life and kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard and get to land. The rest were to get there on planks or on other pieces of the ship. In this way, everybody reached land safely. So first, if Paul hadn't been there, the ship would have crashed at sea. And so God is a God of life and life is spared. Secondly, if Paul hadn't been there, all of the prisoners would have been killed. But, but there is this one person that Paul has influence over. He has shown wisdom. He has shown care toward. And this person says, no, 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 we're not going to kill all of these criminals. And isn't that an amazing thing that the person of God ends up saving the lives of the criminals simply by his presence there in this bad situation? That this person who he has found favor with ends up doing not only him a solid, but ends up doing everybody in his same situation a solid. And so these guys who had made bad decisions and who had sinned, once again, God is redeeming the situation. And they're not experiencing some kind of de facto execution or death at sea, but they get an opportunity to live life. And not only do they get an opportunity to live life, they get an opportunity to experience the good news. Once on shore, we found out that the island was called Malta. The islanders showed us unusual kindness. They built a fire 
and welcomed us all because it was raining and cold. Paul gathered a pile of brushwood, and as he put it on the fire, a viper, driven out by the heat, fastened itself onto his hand. When the islanders saw the snake hanging from his hand, they said to each other, This man must be a murderer, for though he escaped from the sea, the goddess Justice has not allowed him to, to, to live. But Paul shook the snake off into the fire and suffered no ill effects. The people expected him to swell up or suddenly fall dead. But after waiting a long time and seeing nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and said he was a god. There was an estate nearby that belonged to Publius, the chief official of the island. He welcomed us into his home and showed us generous hospitality for three days. His father was sick in bed, suffering from fever and dysentery. Paul went in to see him, and after prayer, placed his hands on him and healed him. When this happened, the rest of the sick on the island came and were cured. They honored us in many ways, and when we were ready to sail, they furnished us with the supplies that we needed. This is really interesting to me, and it's interesting because of all the imagery that we have going on here. We have these guys who were cast into the water, and then they come out of the water. And what do we know about being put in the water and coming out of the water in Scripture? It is this sign of new life, and it is this sign of, of new chances. It is this sign of rebirth and redemption. Over and over again, whether it was the flood, whether it was, it was Jonah, whether it was in the New Testament, when people are being baptized, when you go into that water, and when you come back out, things are different. And so these guys, they go into this water and they swim ashore and they come out. And so we have in our minds primed with this imagery of, of, of new life, of new life. And here they are and they're all excited. They're gathered around the fire and blam up, man, I do not like snakes. And I, that snake, honestly, I'll be honest with you, that snake would not have bitten me. Because the minute I would have seen it, I would have been space ghost, coast to coast, 100 miles an hour, the other way, and it never would have ever caught up with me. Paul, you know, for all the great things, he was slow of reflexes. Not very cat-like. So this dude gets bit. This dude gets bit and should have died and should have died. But the fact that he did not die was then, what, a testimony a testimony to the power of his God. And so then I'm reminded of a couple of different things. I'm reminded of the Israelites walking around in the desert and these serpents are unleashed on them and these serpents are biting them and people are, people are falling out. And what does God say? God says, Moses, take your staff and put it up. And when people look at that staff, they will be saved. They will be healed. And then, and then I'm thinking about Jesus and, and how that imagery is still kind of there, that Jesus-Moses imagery. And there's, there's this tie there where, where, where people are being bit by that serpent that is the tempter, that is Satan, that, that is the devil himself. And what's Jesus saying? Like, look, I'm up here. I'm on, this, I'm on this stick. I'm on this cross. And you look at me and you will be saved. And now here's Paul, and he's been bit by this snake, and we're seeing some, some imagery there. And Paul himself, no, he's not a god, but what do we know about Paul? Man, he loves Jesus Christ. And so Paul here has said all of these very strategic things. He's getting ready to say some strategic things when he gets to Rome. You think when he's in people's houses healing them that he's not saying, I heal you in the name of Jesus? You better believe he is. 
And you think he's not sharing with them his stories about all of the ways in which God has redeemed bad situations that he's in? How God has even redeemed his very life by saving him out from being this judgmental, murderous, hateful man to to, to now being one one of the key cornerstones of the early church? You bet he is. And so now that these people are looking at this one who has been bit by the serpent, but has survived the glory of God now is being planted on this island. And they come because of Paul's, excuse me, because of Paul's service to love him and to not only love him, but to bless him and to bless the people that were with him. Now, finally, finally, they get to Rome. And after three months at sea, they get out to Rome, and um, Paul is supposed to meet some people. He's supposed to meet some Jewish leaders before he gets to meet with Caesar. And the reason that he's supposed to meet with Jewish leaders is because Paul used to be a, a leader in the Jewish church. And he's been preaching, and he's been writing these letters, and he's been saying these things. And one of the things that Paul was really careful about, and you see this in the book of Romans, was to not disrespect his Jewish heritage. To not disrespect his Jewish heritage. This is a man who's always quoting the Old Testament. This is a man who's trying to get Jews and Gentiles to get along, but he's wanting uh, an assimilation that, that takes pieces of both cultures and comes together. He's not asking Jews to give up their ethnicity or their culture. He's just asking them to, to tweak their theology a little bit, right? And it's not even a huge jump. It's just a little tweak to follow this other Jew, this Jesus, who has done so much, who has died, and who who has risen again. But, but these Jewish leaders, they're a little bit confused and people have been talking and not everybody can read Paul's letters. And so they think he might be some kind of religious insurrectionist. They have questions about this sect that he has started to cultivate, not only in Rome, but across the Greco-Roman world. And so in, in Romans 28, beginning in verse 23, they arranged to meet Paul on a certain day. And came in even larger numbers to the place where he was staying. And by place where he was staying, we pretty much mean where he was on house arrest. He witnessed to them from morning till evening, explaining about the kingdom of God. And from the law of Moses and from the prophets, he tried to persuade them about Jesus. Some were convinced by what he said, but others would not believe. They disagreed among themselves and began to leave after Paul had made this final statement. The Holy Spirit spoke the truth to your ancestors when he said through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving, but never perceiving for this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn and I would heal them. Therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles and they will listen. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in this own rented house that he could not leave and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Think about the path that led us to this place and now consider what Paul is doing. He's not saying, yeah, man, I finally made it to Rome. I, I, I can relax. 
yeah, man, God said that because these people were with me, their lives would be saved, and I saved their lives, and now I can chill. He didn't say, I went to this island, cold, freezing, having swam in the ocean, got salt water all up in my nose, my skin got all dry and and ashy, and I still got bit by a snake, saved these people's lives, I'm going to take me a sabbatical. No, Paul gets off the boat, and he's preaching. And he's testifying and he's telling people about who this Jesus is. He is not playing the role of the diplomat because if he was playing the role of the diplomat, he would not have been so explicit to these Jewish leaders about who Jesus was in his life. But he laid it plain and he laid it bare. And some people chose to listen to him and some people chose to reject him. But that was of no mind to him because he was of a singular focus. And that one focus was to talk about how good God is, to talk about the story of God from the Old Testament, quoting the scriptures that he quotes here and the scriptures that were alluded to, to talk about Jesus to talk about the power of the Holy Spirit and to give people an opportunity to enter into the family of Jesus Christ. And so when we talk about this dude that in Romans is keeping it 100 and is a little bit too intense for us sometimes, it takes us to uncomfortable places, asks, asks us to do things that we don't even know whether or not we can do them. We can look to his life and say, well, you know what? There's kind of a blueprint there. He's not asking us to do anything that he himself did not do. And so there are a couple of challenges then for us. What's our perspective? Is our perspective that we want to live lives that will go anywhere God will call us to? Even if that means people spread lies about us that may put us in jail, are we still willing to follow God to those places? Even if it might put us in danger, are we still willing to go to those places so that others may be spared? Are we still willing, even when people look at us and say, well, he must have been a murderer, bad things are happening to him, to to say, no, 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 that's not the case. Let me show you what the glory of God looks like. Are we still willing, even when our adversaries come to us and question our spirituality, are we still willing to take that groundedness that we have of knowing our word, of knowing our scripture, of knowing our story, of knowing the story of God, of knowing the story of the church, and to share that without shame and without inhibition to give people an opportunity to hear. And even when they reject that testimony, even when they reject that story, are we willing to keep living it and are we willing to keep sharing it? That's the call. And for some of us right now, that call might just be like a little bit too big. You're like, man, I don't know. I don't know about all of that because that is a lot. And I might crumple under the weight of all of that. And if that's you right now, I'm going to say this. Like, that's okay. You don't have to walk out of this room in 23 minutes and be Paul. All you got to do when you walk out of this room in 23 minutes is say, man, I want to follow Jesus. I want to follow Jesus. And know that the Holy Spirit that Paul talks about, that same Holy Spirit that empowered him to do so many things, is the same Holy Spirit that is alive in this community today. It's alive in our churches today. It's alive in, in, in us today. And that Holy Spirit can cultivate something through the Word of God and through our stories and through our experiences, and through the people around us to transform us and to change us, that our character might become more Christ-like, and that our actions 
might bring glory to the name of Jesus Christ. God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this word, God. And we thank you, too, for the, the power of story and the power of, of, of narrative. Like, those are, it's so important for us to remember and to imagine what has happened, happened to those who have come before us. And God, let us not just be entertained or excited by those things. Let us be inspired by those things because those stories now have been put into your word as sacred scripture. And we know, God, that your word does not come back void. And even the stories that we have in our lives that we've heard from our friends or from our family members about how you've changed their lives, even though those aren't scripture, help us to see the value in those things. Help those stories, those testimonies to encourage us and to challenge us. And even, God, if you're not calling us to be spiritual superheroes today, help us to at least in the time that we have left together tonight, God, to come to terms with whatever the next step is that you would have us take along our journey that we might become more Christ-like. We love you, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.